0: In this episode, we're going to hear from someone you might be familiar with, missionary and martyr Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott preached this sermon in 1951 at his alma mater, Wheaton College in Illinois. The title of this sermon is The Feeding of the 5,000. There are only two recorded sermons by Jim Elliott in existence, and you're about to listen to one of them. I'm Elise, and you're listening to Revive Radio. Revive Radio no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Jim Elliott penned these words seven years before his death. He is rephrasing the 17th century preacher Philip Henry who said, He is no fool who parts with that which he cannot keep when he is sure to be recompensed with that which he cannot lose. Jim Elliott was born in 1927 and grew up in Portland, Oregon. His grandparents were Scottish immigrants and his parents were devout Christians. Jim became a Christian when he was six years old. As he grew older, he became a skilled orator. He prepared and delivered a speech praising President Franklin Roosevelt mere hours after his death that was met with great applause from both students and faculty. He was a stout pacifist and a conscientious objector. He also believed that Christians should not engage in politics. He graduated from Wheaton College in 1949, where he met his future wife Elizabeth, whom he married four years later in Quito, Ecuador. While studying linguistics and translation at Camp Wycliffe in Oklahoma, a missionary who had worked with the Quechua people in Ecuador told him about the Waorani people, whose name means the true people. Surrounding tribes called them the Naked Savages or the Aka. The Waorani were a small tribe which had killed many of the Quechua and any foreigners who had previously tried to make contact. He felt called to go share the gospel with them. Now let's stop here for a moment and think about that. How many of us would hear that and say, These are the people I'm going to go share the gospel with. Many of us would pull a Jonah and go as far away from Ecuador as geographically possible. Not Jim Elliot, though. That's how devoted he was to the call of God on his life. Six years later, in 1956, he and four fellow missionaries were found speared to death after making inroads with the Warani for the past year and a half. God used the life of Jim Elliot, Nate Saint, Pete Fleming, Ed McCully, and Roger Yodarian to influence many others to go into missions. Two years after the slaying of their husbands, Elizabeth Elliot and Valerie Saint moved into the tribe to share the gospel and translate the Waorani language into written form. Among the earliest converts to Christianity were the very men responsible for their husbands' deaths. Isaiah 55.11 says, So my word that proceeds from my mouth will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish what I please and it will prosper where I send it.
1: Evangel according to Mark chapter 6, reading from verse 30. If there's anybody who can't hear me speaking now, will you kindly raise your hand so that we can put on another microphone. Mark chapter 6 and verse 30. I'm reading from the American Revision. And the apostles gathered themselves together unto Jesus, and they told him all things whatsoever they had done and whatsoever they had taught. And he saith unto them, Come ye yourselves apart into a desert place, and rest awhile, For there were many coming and going, and they had no leisure so much as to eat. And they went away in a boat in a desert place apart. And the people saw them going, and many knew them, and ran together there on foot from all the cities, and out went them. And he came forth and saw a great multitude, and he had compassion on them, because they were as sheep not having a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when the day was now far spent, his disciples came unto him and said, The place is desert, and the day is now far spent. Send them away, that they may go into the country and villages round about, and buy themselves somewhat to eat. But he answered and said unto them, Give ye them to eat. And they say unto him, Shall we go and buy two hundred shillings worth of bread, and give them to eat? And he said unto them, How many loaves have ye? Go and see. And when they knew, they say, Five and two fishes. And he commanded them that all should sit down by companies upon the green grass. And they sat down in ranks, by hundreds and by fifties. And he took the five loaves and the two fishes, and looking up into heaven, he blessed and brake the loaves, and he gave to the disciples to set before them, and the two fishes divided he among them all. And they all ate and were filled. And they took up broken pieces, twelve basketfuls, and all of the fishes. And they that ate the loaves were five thousand men. And straightway he commanded his disciples to enter into the boat, and to go away before him into the other side of Bethsaida, while he himself sendeth the multitude away. And after he had taken leave of them, he departed into the mountains to pray. And when even was come, the boat was in the midst of the sea, and he alone on the land. And seeing them distressed and rowing, for the wind was contrary unto them, about the fourth watch of the night he cometh unto them, walking on the sea. And he would have passed by them, but they... When they saw him walking on the sea, supposed that it was a ghost, and cried out, for they all saw him and were troubled. But he straightway spake with them and saith unto them, Be of good cheer. It is I, be not afraid. And he went up unto them, unto them into the boat, and the wind ceased, and they were so amazed in themselves, for they understood not concerning the loaves, but their heart was hardened. Mark chapter 8. If it's tedious to you to read the scriptures, I suggest that you get over your tediousness and learn to follow along, appreciate God's word as it is written for us. Verse 1. In those days there was a great multitude, and they had nothing to eat. And he called unto him his disciples and said unto them, I have compassion on the multitude, because they continue with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away fasting to their home, they will faint on the way, and some of them are come from far. And his disciples answered him, When shall one be able to fill these men with bread here in a desert place? And he asked them, How many loaves have ye? And they said, Seven. And he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke and gave to his disciples to set before them, and they set them before the multitude. And they had a few small fishes, and having blessed them, he commanded to set these also before them. And they ate and were filled, and they took up of broken pieces that remained over, seven baskets and there were about four thousand he sent them away and straightway he entered into the boat with his disciples and came into the parts of dalmanutha verse 14 and they forgot to take bread and they had not in the boat with them any more than one loaf and he charged them saying take heed beware of the leaven of the pharisees and the leaven of herod and they reasoned with one another saying we have no bread and jesus perceiving it, saith unto them Why reason ye because ye have no bread? Do ye not perceive, neither yet understand? Have ye your heart hardened? Having eyes, see ye not? And having ears, hear ye not? And do ye not yet remember? When I break the five loaves among the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces took ye up? And they say unto him, Twelve. When the seven among the four thousand, how many basketfuls of broken pieces took ye up? And they say unto him, Seven. And he said unto them, do ye not yet understand, Father, we own that this is thy word concerning thy Son, and we pray that thou wilt cause it to run and be glorified, that thou wilt make it to prosper in our hearts and to accomplish that for which thou hast it into the world. Honor Christ, revive thy saints, move us to new affection for him, grant us enlargement of mind and alertness of heart that he might receive the glory due to his name. For his name's sake we ask. Amen. If you've come here to learn something profound about the Lord Jesus this afternoon, you'll have to wait until the next speaker. Because I'm not really attempting profundity, I'm only attempting what I should like to call reality. Because I'm persuaded that what we need is not higher doctrine, not more truth concerning Christ, Not finer lines of distinction about his person, although although there are such to be found. There are in the reaches of the person of Christ and the riches of his work, such that would, as eternity does, tease us out of thought. And I don't pretend to propose those to you this afternoon. For I feel that what we need is not new truth, not higher truth, but we need to fill the truth that we now have with action. We need to put content in what we already believe. It's very unfortunate that among those who gather as we do, there is the accusation that we have higher truth, but we have lesser morals. There is the accusation that though we possess better doctrine, we have slower devotion. And though it may be that we have a better understanding of the book of Ephesians, yet we have a very poor practice of the book of Proverbs. And so I understand from this that What we need is not higher truth, since truth in itself is not the thing which liberates us to live godly lives. What we need is to fill already what we know with content and power and reality. That thing we have not. Doctrine, we have a plenty. Truth is rampant. Knowledge, effectual. But reality we lack, and that is in my own conscience as well as in yours. And so today I'm not going to try and develop any profound lines about trust. I merely want to state a few things concerning a very obvious miracle. You know the scripture says through the Apostle Peter in the second epistle that we should give all all diligence to add to our faith such things as virtue. In our virtue we are to add knowledge and to our knowledge we are to add self-control and to our self-control patience and to our patience godliness and to our godliness brotherly kindness and to our brotherly kindness love and Peter remarks if these things be in you and abound they will make you to be not barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of God implying that it's very possible to have a very high knowledge of God and yet be barren and unfruitful if these things be in you and abound he says they will make you to be not barren and unfruitful in the knowledge of God I want to suggest as I feel in my own soul that we as saints of the Lord in this day have plenty of knowledge from God but we have darkness and there is nothing within us which will give deliverance in our generation by way of evangelical fervor and energy. We lack power. We lack reality. And Peter says, he who lacks these things is blind. He cannot see afar off. He has forgotten the cleansing of his old sins, And I fear that that's the state of my own soul. And I know that there are those here whose hunger of heart, whose desires after Christ, witness an amen. And so, this afternoon I want to speak something of a very simple miracle. A miracle which you, I suppose, are all well acquainted with. And the reading of which may have been tedious to you. It's the miracle of Christ making something out of nothing. I want to speak first of all about the importance of this miracle and then for a few minutes about the implications of it first of all as to its importance i read to you two occasions when the lord jesus made bread for thousands of people from practically nothing it's interesting is it not that we should have occurring in the gospel of matthew and in the gospel of mark this miracle repeated twice within two chapters interesting in the first place, the gospel writers are not used to repeating miracles one right after another other of the same quality. Mark in particular makes this distinction. He is selective in his miracles. He chooses one miracle of a person with fever, another of one with leprosy, one with paralysis, one with a withered arm, one with uh, deafness, one with dumbness, one from each phase of the... Miracles where Christ brought, he produced one witness, saved from two phases. Two miracles we find in the Gospel of Mark are repeated. One of them is Christ's consistent power over demons. The other is his repetition of this miracle to the disciples, the being of thousands from nothing. Now that's significant, I say, especially if we understand at all what the writers of the Gospels are trying to do. Namely, impress us with the reality and power of a person if they so outline their uh, miracles and the teachings of Christ, that certain things converge together and seem to head up because of their enumeration in a certain order, we feel that those things are important. Not only do we find these things recorded twice in Matthew and in Mark, Luke records the same miracle. And wonder of wonders, the Apostle John takes it upon himself to record exactly the same miracle. That is more significant than all for this reason. Because John, as a writer... Was very selective, super selective in his choosing of miracles. He picked seven certain signs which he felt were the most impressive to convict people of the godhood of Jesus Christ. And he chose those miracles in such a way that men should understand the development of faith in the disciples. And it's interesting, since we suppose that John had the uh, availability of the other gospels, that he should so repeat a miracle which was repeated already. John, who said nothing of the baptism of Christ. John, who said nothing of the birth of Christ. John, who says nothing of the temptation of Christ. John, who refuses to comment on the Gethsemane agony. John, who refuses to make a transfiguration scene in his gospel. John, who entirely omits such wonderful things as the ascension. Must have had something very important in mind when he repeated this miracle, which had already been repeated in the gospels five times. Why, then? did John do this? And why is it repeated twice? It seems within a few days of the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, so much for the importance of the miracle, now for the implications of it, and this is the answer to our question as to why it's repeated. There is one thing that's strikingly obvious about the miracle that nobody seems to catch on to, except those who were around. Now, I know that the uh, writer of the rope has humanized this miracle to show that when the Lord Jesus, after his teachings of love and devotion, finally loosened the purse strings of the tight Jews and made them share their lunches, figured that that was the actual, the naturalistic explanation of the miracle. Well, whatever that fine gentleman may say, I want to say that that is entirely contrary to Scripture. And if this thing happened, which we read in the Gospel, with such uh, careless naivete, with which the Gospel writer handles the situation? simply saying, he took bread, he took fish, and he blessed it, looked up into heaven, and then he broke it and gave his disciples, and they fed five thousand. If that happened, my friend, Jesus Christ is a creator. Now, his creatorship is the thing that is implied by the miracle. And I want you to notice, too, in the Gospels, the results of the miracle. Because it's just following this miracle in every single gospel instance that we have the great confession from the Apostle Peter. It's just after the Lord Jesus Christ has taken bread in his hand, broken and given to five or four thousand people, that Peter is asked the question, and whom say ye that I am? Peter responds, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Or in John's gospel, To whom should we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. So that the effect of the miracle upon the apostles was such that it brought about and immediately at that point we see Christ in the Gospels changing his attitude in his teaching. Immediately that confession comes or is brought from the Apostle Peter, immediately the Lord Jesus begins to speak of his suffering. As soon as they were persuaded of his Creatorship or his Godhead, then at that moment, and at that moment only, can the Lord Jesus lead them on to understand his sufferings. And this brings me to another interesting implication. It's this. That the Lord Jesus presented his person before he presented his work. And that means, my friend, that in our preaching of the gospel, there is a very, very serious problem when we only describe the work of Christ and get men to quote after us, Jesus died for my sin, or the cross of Christ is that in which I know forgiveness. True as that is, and blessed, yet I say, Jesus Christ in his persuasion of the disciples persuaded as to his person, Then as to his work. And that's important because it gives for us a pattern for gospel preaching. The gospel is never stated in the the book of Acts as some of us would suppose it to be stated in what we call preaching the blood. You will search the Pauline uh, sermons and the Petrine sermons in vain for one mention of the word blood in the book of Acts, save one time when speaking to the Ephesian elders where he says that the church of God is redeemed by blood. Now, that doesn't mean that we aren't saved by blood and that forgiveness doesn't come by blood, but it tells us that the, the, in the initial contact that the disciples had with the world, it was a contact pressing upon men the claims of a person and not the claims of his work. Friends, there are some people who are being disturbed by what you're saying. I wonder if for the word's sake you'd cry. Thank you very much. The Lord Jesus then persuaded his disciples that he, that they should be impressed, first of all, with his person. Following that, his work. And that's the way the gospel preachers in the book of Acts work. They pressed upon men the creatorship of, of the Lord Jesus. They pressed upon men the necessity for realizing that this Jesus, this Nazarene, was the one whom God appointed to be the judge of the world. His person was the thing that was stressed in the gospel. There's an interesting story in the Old Testament about the people in the days of the kings, who took the brazen serpent which Peter had, or which Moses had put up in the pole you'll remember in the wilderness and they took the thing and they had made an idol out of it built a little shrine to it and were worshipping at it you remember that one of the kings took the thing and called it a, herstein, a piece of brass and did away with it so also with the cross of Christ as we've had mentioned before here there is plenty of cross-bearing in the sense of wearing it around your neck in a little uh, dangle. Plenty of cross-bearing in the sense that people want to put it on their uh, uh, churches and so forth. Lots of that kind of cross bearing But the Lord Jesus is not, first of all, wanting us to be impressed with his work. He wants us, in the original, to be impressed with his person. And until we grip the person of Christ, we see nothing in his death. Now, the Lord Jesus, having persuaded these men that he was creator, has done something which for all time is significant. If Jesus Christ, the man who handled a hammer and tools at Nazareth, if Jesus Christ, the man who stood there that day, and as any other man in his day, wearing a beard, I suppose, and clad in the garments of a peasant, as any other man of that day might stand and give thanks for bread before a group, Jesus Christ stood and created bread. If that's so, my friend, then there are some tremendous things going on in the world which you and I ought to pay attention to. If the Lord Jesus Christ actually stood there and from nothing, brought from his promised hands, he brought from those hands absolute new things which had never been before, brand new atom structures, Brand new relationships in the, uh, not only the creating of wheat, but of making it bread in an instant. Jesus Christ creating things on the spot. If that actually happened, then Jesus Christ is and must be the creator of the world. If he is the creator of the world, something else is important. Jesus Christ, if he created nature, we must expect to see in nature. Not only are we to look for him in nature, but then we must expect to see him in the universe. Not only in this world, I mean, but he must, there must be in Christ some explanation for the outer world, those reaches of space, which as yet our strongest telescopes have not fathomed. If Jesus Christ is creator, there must be in him an answer, an excuse for the existence of these things. Not only so, there must be an explanation in him of spirit wonders just exactly the manifestations of the spirit which are now operating in many parts of our world Uh, not so much the spirit of God but the spirit of the evil one they must be explained by Jesus Christ not only so but if Jesus Christ created man then my friends Jesus Christ must be inherent in history and we can expect to see him in history those three things I have five minutes to deal with them if I understand the time they have But we'll just take the first one Jesus Christ in nature Second, Jesus Christ in the universe, and the third, Jesus Christ in history. Jesus Christ in nature. Very interesting to me that the poets have discovered more of God in nature than most Christians. Heathen poets. Poets of our own nation who, in the last century, sought nature for some of her secrets and discovered things and beauties of God in nature, although they did not recognize Christ. Saw things in nature that Christians never see. Oh, you say, but Christians do see more in nature. But most Christians don't. Christians have the capacity to see more than nature, but most most Christians never investigate. Never bother themselves with the wonders of the clouds that surround their earth. Never marvel at the greatness of the mountains and understand what great principles are embodied in God creating a mountain. Why he left it there. Why it stands as it is. No Christian that I know of is really earnestly finding Christ in nature. But if Christ made nature, Christ is in nature, and the Scriptures say so. All things, the Scripture said, were created by him, and they're now sustained through him, and they will ultimately find their end in him. Everything, the Scripture says, that's so of. That's so of not just the world. That's true of every tree, every blade of grass, every grain of sand. Every single thing that we can mention today, which is in this creation, has its beginning. It's sustaining and it's ending in Jesus Christ. And it's our responsibility and our privilege to consider these things. I propose to be able to discover many of them for you this afternoon. Just a few. Let me suggest, for instance, an interpretation which you may never have heard as regarding a couple of things that John says about the Lord Jesus. In chapter 1, we find him called the true life. Chapter 1 says, that was the true light which lighteth every man coming into the world now if the Lord Jesus has created nature and we have the right and the responsibility to find him in nature then this thing that we see about us that we call light that whereby we perceive color that whereby we see it all that whereby plants grow light the scripture says Jesus was the true light meaning what? Not that light which we see is false, not that the light which we see is uh, is uh, something that isn't real, and yet I like Moffat's translation of that which says he was the real light. He was the real light. Moffat nearly consistently throughout his translation of John's gospel translates the word truth as reality and the word true as real. And it's interesting to me that the scriptures show us that light as we see it and as we uh, enjoy its benefits is only not a false life but a representation of the real life. In another sense the Lord Jesus spoke of himself as being the true vine. I say not that other vines are false vines when the Lord Jesus walked into that garden to Gethsemane it wasn't in order that he should he saw the vine and said well there's an interesting illustration of what I am rather he has for eternity been in relationship to creatures as a vine through whom has flown life and power. And in order that we might understand just the relationship of the creator to the creature, the Lord Jesus created a vine. And the vine has its reality not in the wood and cells which make it up, but rather in the nature of Christ. And that's what the scripture says. I am the true vine. I'm the real vine. In much the same as Plato's Discovered back of the real world, an ideal world, so the Lord Jesus indicated that back of everything in nature, he himself stood. Everything finds its reality, its end, its meaning, its fruition in Jesus the Christ. Now, if we're not finding these things, we're robbing ourselves of some of the things that are ours. Because Paul says in the third chapter of 1 Corinthians, that whether Paul, or Apollos, or Cephas, or White. Or death, or the world, or things present, or things to come, all are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God. That's one of the most terrific world and life views ever created. Here is an all-purposing, all-inclusive, enlarging vision for the Christian to see in everything that Christ has created some picture of Christ Himself. A little poem I learned recently, which I think I'll pass on to you, you may not like. It may be a brand new idea to you, way to interpret nature, but it's interesting. The scripture says this, that since the Lord Jesus is the true vine, therefore we must find from him our sustenance, our strength, our power, our ability to bear fruit. And we find then ourselves to be branches and so forth. Now then, if the Lord Jesus was so free in the use of a vine, why don't we get free in the use of things like rain? Why don't we get free in understanding the real, the real meaning of the movement of the ocean? Hear this word. I see his blood upon the roads, and in the stars the glory of his eyes. His body gleams amid eternal snows. His tears fall from the sky. I see his face in every flower. Forgotten the next line. The next one goes like this. The thunder and the singing of the birds are but his voice. The thunder and the singing of the birds are but his voice. And so the Lord Jesus is seen as the one whose pathway, uh, all pathways by his feet are worn. I see his strong heart stir the ever-beating sea. I see his thorn of crowns in every thorn. His cross in every tree. Such things as that, I think, are what nature was made for. Not just to be, but in order to understand, in order to teach us something of Christ. In order that we should see in everything that is made, reminders of himself. In a tree, a reminder of his cross. I say not that's all that's in a tree. But there's a suggestion. And I see also that my time is gone. Only this one thing. Understand, will you, that the Lord Jesus Christ, in being creator of the universe, as you all hold, I suppose, oh yes, you say, if Jesus Christ was the Son of God, then what the apostles consistently held true about him, that he was the creator of the world, must be true. Suggested in Genesis 1, where the scriptures make a plurality out of the creator. Let us make man in our image. Plurality speaking. As though Jesus Christ were the coefficient cause of all things with God. I say not that he was the instrument through which things were made, but that he was the coefficient cause with God through which all things were made. This suggested also in the 8th chapter of Proverbs, where wisdom seems to be the uh, uh, usable thing which God takes up to work out his purposes in the world. I wonder if we're really appreciating what we mean when we say Jesus Christ is creative. I wonder if the word that we read at another time from John chapter 1, not one thing that was made was made apart from him. I wonder if you believe that. I wonder if you understand that this solid wood here, composed of so many particles so close together that I can't tell them apart, apart are actually in in movement, and that the secret of matter must be explained in the Lord Jesus Christ and his relationships to the creation. Because the scripture says of him, That he is the beginning or the principle of the creation of God. Meaning that all things which are created were created in a relationship to God which we must understand as originally finding its code in Christ. My time is gone. And I close asking you this simple question from the gospel. Have you understood concerning the Lord? Do you know what it means to know a creator? Because one day you know each of us, not only the things that are made, but we who are made shall one day find our end in Christ, one way or another. It shall either be that we will find our end in him as the proton finds its end in the nucleus. Where we will be spinning around him for eternity, as it were. Held by him. In Empowered by him. Knit and related to all other things by him. Have we found in Christ? what it means to know a faithful creator. Are we enjoying those things? Would to God that he should stir us up to understand and enlarge our minds concerning the great world built about us. Not only the world, but the men who are about us, who were created for God's glory and in whom God shall accomplish his end. Mark my word and the word of God that every man, I care not whether he be a reprobate or a rebel or whether he be a sanctimonious Bible school graduate, that man shall find his end in Jesus Christ, and so shall you. Then what shall the end of them be? How shall your end be? Will it be when you reach heaven that you shall have sustained in those days powers and potential to worship a God you've seen through years in nature? Have you understood concerning the Lord? I declare to you tonight and this by way of personal testimony that you can know that Jesus Christ is your Lord. You can know that your sins are forgiven. You can know that God's word is real. You can hear God speaking in his book. I hear no audible voices, but now it means something. There's something bigger than just hearing on the eardrum. Like there's something bigger than seeing with the eye. much more important to see with the mind than it is to see with the eye, you know. And that's what the hearing i'm talking about god will begin to have a voice in your life a voice that you've never heard before there'll be constraints on you and joys within you you never knew before new things to be glad about and the things you've been glad about in the past you'll be more glad and more capable of joy consider what god has to offer you my friend he gives you meaning in life that's the best way i know how to put it meaning in life you find out what you were made for. And life is not just a meaningless teddy in the great useless current of existence. Life becomes something real and important. Something big. Something fantastically real. I hope that God is so with you. Remember this word, Peter says. One day with the Lord is in a thousand years. In a thousand years is one day, you know what that means? That means that Jesus Christ hasn't been gone quite two days yet, as far as i concerned. Two days, He's just been quiet for two days. You say, but it's been longer than that. Maybe from your point of view, not from God. And you know, we have some interesting things suggested in the Scriptures about the third day. Same imply from this that three thousand years or the third thousand years will be something very good. Something very good for we Christians. I don't say now an exact numeric correspondence to our dating, but, you know, the scriptures imply that we've been on the world just about 6,000 years, we as a race, and the 7,000, the seventh thousand, not much more than 50 years off, if we reckon according to scriptural it's genealogy fairly close the seventh thousand will be about the 7th day with God God's great day of rest then the rest with God see brethren that you be at peace and don't be ignorant of this one thing that God's long suffering is to be figured out to his salvation that's how we explain it God's going to deliver men for this day and then it's over. I wonder if you've been delivered. Well, let's stop there and ask the Lord to make the word real.
0: What we need is to fill what we already know with content, power, and reality. It is possible to have a very high knowledge of God, but yet be barren and unfruitful. What better person to drive home those points than the man who lived what he preached and gave his life for the gospel a mere six years after preaching this sermon? If you enjoyed this episode, please be so kind as to review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and spread the word. Thanks for listening. I'm Elise, and this is Revive Radio.